So we are continuing on in our study in the Gospel of John, but we're wrapping up a second section of the Gospel today as we move into the seventh, 17th chapter. Um, we've talked about the fact that the Gospel of John is really broken into three segments. The first segment was verses or chapters 1 through 12, which looked at the public ministry of Jesus. Um, the second segment of that is a, a section that we uh, look at and have been looking at in which we're looking at this private time, what we've referred to as the upper room discourse. It's a, a time following the celebration of Passover in which Jesus is just there with his apostles, providing them some last minute, some what I trust is important, significant teaching uh, to them. Um, and then we'll, following this, um, of course, look at the the Passover um, and uh, death and resurrection section in the next few weeks. But, but today we wrap things up by spending some time in a prayer that Jesus said, uh, a final prayer before he would leave and go to the garden to pray. And in this prayer, we again, prays for three different groups. He prays first for himself, that he might glorify the Father. He's uh, getting ready to enter into a very challenging time, and he knows that. And so he wants to make sure that everything that he says, everything that he does is glorifying to the Father and also prays uh, that the Father might glorify him. The second thing that he prays for, the second group that he prays for, are the apostles that are there in that room, that God would provide them a sense of joy. He knows what awaits in the years and decades following, and so he wants there to be that sense of joy that will be with them throughout that, as well as uh, just God's hand of protection upon them um, Again, knowing what's coming down the road. And then the last section of his prayer is for us, for you and me, even for the, the, uh, the believers that were present there, that were not a part of the apostles. God, Jesus said a special prayer for us. And while I think all of these uh, apply to us uh, today, it's this last section that we particularly want to focus on as we look to John, the 17th chapter, verses 20 through 23. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you brought them, turn open to that, John 17. Um, if you didn't bring your own, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you, or if you have a Bible app, you can use that as well. Uh, but as we prepare to look at this, I, I want to just sort of give you a, a heads up on what our emphasis is going to be, and it's on that idea of unity, of unity. So let's hear and see what it is that Jesus had to pray for his people, for us, uh, some 2,000 years ago. Listen. My prayer is not for them alone. Jesus speaking here about the apostles. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus here focuses on this, this theme, this idea of unity, which is in, in many ways not surprising because we have struggled with that idea throughout the history of our existence. Um, we just don't seem to get along together oftentimes. I did a little bit of research on this in preparation for this morning, and I came upon a, an organization that, that's tracked throughout history the, the different wars and major conflicts that have existed uh, throughout the, the world. 
And one of the things that they found is over the last 13,000 years, and that's about as far back as they can go reliably with the archaeological evidence, over the course of the last 13,000 years, there have been 10,624 wars and conflicts. 10,624. That's almost a major conflict every single year throughout kind of the known history of our species. Now, fortunately, we live in, in 2023, which means we've learned, haven't we? We've gained wisdom and insight. We've, we've got more understanding and intelligence than they've had any time in history. So certainly things have got to be better today, right? Well, no. Um, the same group, um, when they were evaluating uh, the most recent year, which they've done work on, was 2021. And in that year, there were 40 major conflicts and wars throughout our world. We don't hear about most of them because they happen in, in other places, South America, Africa, um, and the Middle East, and so forth, but they're happening all around. And this didn't even include the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. We just have a difficult time getting along with one another. And so it's not surprising that Jesus says uh, that needs to be one of the hallmarks of the church. That needs to be one of the hallmarks of his people. And so that's what he talks about, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we begin just sort of with that overarching uh, understanding of what's the significance of unity. I think unity is like many things in life. We don't really appreciate it or, or, or miss it until it's gone. But when it's not there, I think we certainly understand the effects of that, which I think is a part of the reason that David wrote in one of his famous psalms, Psalm 133, words that speak about the joy that comes when unity does occur. In Psalm 133, and it's a short psalm, this is the entire psalm, we read these words. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forever. He begins here by saying how good and pleasant it is when people, God's people live together in unity. It's good because it's reflective of God's nature, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But it's also pleasant because I think all of us would agree, isn't it much more enjoyable when you're in a setting where people are in harmony with one another rather than when there's discord or, or stress present? I don't know what your life has been or what your upbringing was like, but for some, you grew up in settings where unity was certainly not the thing that you felt. Maybe you grew up in a household where your mom and dad didn't get along. In fact, really didn't get along. Maybe there was pretty regular screaming or shouting that took place. Or, in some ways even worse, there wasn't screaming and shouting. There was just that tension that was there. They wouldn't speak to one another, and you could feel that almost cut through it with a knife. For others of you, maybe you've been in a, in a work setting where, where uh, different workers didn't get along with one another and, and there's always that griping going on or maybe the workers didn't get along with management or, or maybe you've been on a sports team and uh, two different players sort of polarized the, the players there on the team and so there was a constantly bickering and tension that was felt. If you've been in that or other settings, you know that it's just no fun. Which is a part of the reason, I think, that, that we see God emphasize the importance of there being unity within his church, among his people, within his body. 
he goes on to say here that, that it's, it's like, and then he gives a couple of interesting analogies. He says, unity within the body is like uh, the oil running down off the head into the beard and, and onto the clothing. And, and I don't know about you, but when I read this, my first impression is, yuck. Um, that doesn't sound all that appealing to me. I, I don't even like getting ketchup in my mustache. I'm surely not going to want oil flowing down. But the insight that we gain there is the specific where he talks about Aaron's beard. Aaron was the first uh, priest for the nation of Israel to be there. And, and, and when he was put into that role, they anointed him. They dedicated him by pouring olive oil on his head that flowed down, that covered him as a reminder of God's spirit being present and covering him there. It was a good thing. It was a sacred thing. It was a holy thing. And then we see the second example there. It talks about uh, the dew of, of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the highest place around there in the area of Jerusalem. It's the mountain from which the, 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 the snow, when it melts, will, will go down and provide uh, what's needed for growing crops. Or, or even in the city of Jerusalem, it provides a lot of, of their water. And so again, uh, there's a nourishment, there's a new life that comes out of that. And there's a, a kind of an additional symbolism that, uh, that you could read into that. And in both of these cases, and it's deliberate about mentioning it here, there's this flowing down that occurs. And I think it's a reminder to us that when it comes to unity, at least ongoing sustainable unity, that really only happens as God's hands is present. As a species, we can, we can unify around a cause or around a, a goal for a short period of time. We can do that pretty well. But, but once the, the cause or goal is achieved or met, we tend to, to scatter once again and end up going our own way or, or ending up in conflict. If we want there to be sustained unity, it's only as we ask God and invite God to be present in the midst of that. And if we do ask him, we know that he will be there. We know that he'll be present with us because, because we know that our God is a God of unity. He's not a God of division. And we see this exemplified all over Scripture, kind of his fingerprints are all over the different things we read about in God's Word. We see that it exists in the very nature of who he is. We talked about this last week, the fact that he is a triune God, that he's the, the Trinity, that he's Father, that he's Son, that he's Holy Spirit. Again, reminder of those words that they may be one just as we are one. Jesus talking about being one as he's one with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. We see at present that sense of unity uh, in, in the furtherance of our species in, in creation, not the creation back in, in Genesis 1, but the ongoing act of creation is, uh, for us as humanity. In Genesis 2, 24, uh, we're reminded of those words, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's a unity that comes together in, in, in that presence of the marriage relationship. We see that it's present in the Old Testament um, when God first called his people together as a nation, the nation of Israel. He did that by, by bringing together 12 different tribes. Imagine the challenges that go along with that. And we see it exemplified in the New Testament. When the church was first being formed, there were two different groups that, that needed to find a way to coalesce for that, the Jews and the Gentiles. And listen to what Paul has to say about that in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, the church, uh, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. God is a God of unity and not of division. In fact, he feels so strongly about that that I don't think it's inappropriate to say that God really hates divisiveness, disunity within the church. If we go back at Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, the sixth chapter, it says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And then he gives a list of a variety of different things. But the very last one of those is this. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. In fact, God feels so strongly about that. It, he kind of refers to those individuals who stir up conflict as, as almost being like a, a cancer in the body of Christ. As you know, sometimes in, in terms of cancer, you just have to cut that cancer out in order for the, the body to survive. And it, it's described in this way in the book of Titus, the third chapter. It says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time, but after that, have nothing to do with them. Now, in the physical body, when we have to cut out that cancer, we, we take it out and it's gone. Fortunately, in the body of Christ, there's always opportunity for restoration, for healing, for the person to be brought back in. But there are times when the division just has to be addressed very strong and to the point where, if, at least for a season, a person needs uh, to step out. God hates divisiveness among his people. So what is unity then? Well, let's, let's talk first about what unity isn't. Unity is not just getting along with, with everybody. There's a misunderstanding today that, that this idea of unity equates acceptance with unity. It's, it's similar to our misunderstanding with, with how the world has come to embrace this idea of love, at least as it's defined by the world today. The world asserts that unity means that we accept everything and everybody no matter what they do. And Jesus was very accepting of lots of different people. He was accepting of the lost. He was accepting of the deceived. He was accepting of the misled people in the world. But he was not accepting or even tolerant of sin. In fact, he was so intolerant of sin and sinful lives that, that he took the dramatic step of giving his own life of choosing to die for our sins so that we would be set free from the bondage of sin and, and would not have to bear the consequences of sin, which are eternal separation from God. There are consequences to our sinful decisions and, and sinful beliefs. And if we tell others differently, if we tell them that that's not the case, then folks, I would suggest to you, as I've mentioned in, in uh, past sermons that that's just not being loving. In fact, I've become so frustrated, so um, discouraged by the way that, that I see how the evil one has manipulated our world today to pervert and distort these words of, of love and unity and acceptance from what they were intended to be to what the world views them as today. If you have a friend, say, for example, at work, and, and this uh, friend uh, has struggled with alcohol, they're, they're an alcoholic, and, and uh, it's been a tough week at work for them. And so they've had uh, troubles at uh, the workplace, you're aware of that, they've had troubles at home, this, this friend has shared with you. Is it a loving thing to do to them? 
when they reach that point of discouragement and stress, when you know that they'd like nothing more uh, than to have a, uh, a, have a hard uh, drink, uh, uh, something that's there in front of them, would it be loving for you to, to offer them a, a bottle of whiskey in the midst of that? Or say you've got a, a little boy. Say Oliver's grown up a few years here, and, and he has fallen in love with Demolition Derby. He loves watching Demolition Derby on TV. There's nothing that's more fun to him to that. Would it be the loving thing to do for the parents on his fifth birthday to hand him the keys to the family car and say, son, go out and have fun this afternoon? Well, of course not. In fact, that would be unloving to do. What would be loving in the settings is, is to sit there with your friend who's struggling with alcohol until they get past that, that point of stress where they, uh, they're looking toward a relief from a bottle. The loving thing to do would be to buy uh, your son some Tonka trucks that they can still crash together and have fun, but, but in a way that's not going to put them or others at risk. Folks, we need to do that which is loving and accepting everything and everybody and, and so doing, implying that sin is okay, is not loving, nor is it unifying. Sin distances us from God. An unatoned sin distances us eternally from him, which is exactly what the evil one wants. A second thing that we see that, that unity is, is not is that it's not uniformity or unanimity or, or sameness. We don't have to all be the same kind of people, which is good news to us because we're not. We can be strong followers of Jesus and have differing viewpoints, differing perspectives, even, even some differing beliefs in certain areas. We talked a moment ago about one of the examples of, of oneness in God is that idea of marriage. We're called to be one. Now, I can't speak on behalf of wives. I've never been a wife, but I can speak on behalf of husbands. And, and husbands, let me ask you, do you think you're exactly the same as your wife? Do you think the same way she thinks? Do you act the same way that she acts? Do you view life in the same way that she does? I'm pretty sure I can answer for 99% of the guys here, no, we're not the same. We're different people. We're different because of, of gender differences, because of, of life experiences growing up, because of, of personality difference. We're, we're different individuals. And yet, despite these differences, we're still called to have that sense of unity. There's, there's still to be that sense of oneness there. And that can happen because in, in successful marriages as well as in unity, it can occur when we, we recognize and acknowledge the differences which are there. We know that they're there. But we use them in a way that, that makes us more whole, that, that are complementary to one another rather than divisive or destructive. When we talk about this idea of, of unity, we, we see that the Bible gives us some insights in terms of what it is. It's, it's first and foremost centered on Christ and on his word. It's centered on Christ. Remember, we go back to that passage we've read twice already this morning in John 17, 22, that says, they may be one as we are one. Sort of the ultimate model for us, the, the trinity of, of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a different but yet altogether one. We're different and yet all called to be together the body of Christ. And it's a body, it's a unity that's centered on God's word. If we go back just a few verses before that, it says in 16 and 17, 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, Jesus speaking here. So sanctify them by the truth, for your word is truth. Folks, we're not of this world. We know that. Oh, we, we realize that this was never intended to be our, our forever home. And so, so we're just passing through in this earthly existence. But in this existence, God allows us to be a people who are sanctified, that are constantly being drawn, being drawn into closer conformity to the image of his son. And we do that by, by learning to embrace the, uh, the truths of God's word. We do that by, by recognizing that he's given us this wonderful guide to provide direction and insight for us. Insights that allow us to focus on our Father. Insights that allow us to focus on one another rather than, than just upon ourselves. In fact, as we think about this idea of what, of what unity is, I came across um, uh, one book that described unity in, in this way. It said, unity is diversity with harmony. And I love that phrase, unity is diversity with harmony. It acknowledges that there's differences among us. That's always been the case, always will be the case. But it allows those differences to work in a way that are complementary to one another rather than, than competitive or, or destructive. I, one of the great examples that, that I can think of as I kind of chew on that idea of what what's being driven at here is, is what it means to be part of an orchestra, to be part of an orchestra. If you've ever been to a, a, an orchestra, imagine for just a moment that all of these wonderful different instruments, all the people that are there, they've got their instruments, and as the, as the conductor starts them, what you hear is the same instrument playing the same note in the same way. Well, that would be pretty boring. Playing the same note, there, there's just no fullness to that. On the other hand, if you've got an orchestra where everybody's playing whatever note they want to play and whatever tempo or timing they want to do that, then you've just got painful chaos. That's not very fun either. What really allows an orchestra to be, I think, all that it's intended to be is that as we allow each instrument to, uh, to, to play a variety of different notes that are complementary to one another, and all of which add to and fill out the score that they're playing off of. Paul talks about this when we think about the, the church as a body. He makes this analogy. He refers to us as being like a physical body. And each of us are different parts of that body. Some are ears, some are noses, some are knees, some are feet. But the body is only complete. It's only all that God intends as that body comes together. As we each fulfill the function that God has given to us as individuals. So how do we make this happen? How do we nurture and, and further this idea of unity? How do we foster it within the church? Well, one of the things we have to do is be deliberate about it. We have to set it as a goal. One of the things I learned long ago is that you, uh, you, you tend to hit what you aim for. And if you're not aiming for anything, well, that's what you hit. Um, we have to be distinct and deliberate about what we're trying to accomplish Think about if you're wanting to, to learn a new hobby, how do you do that? Well, you, you do some reading, and then you get some equipment, and you practice, and you practice, and you practice until you refine that skill. Say you're wanting to, to learn a, a new uh, subject, a new language, how do you do that? Well, well, you get some tapes, and you listen to how the words are pronounced, and you go over those. You set a goal, a purpose, an intention for that. The same is true for unity. We have to be deliberate about those things. Because when we do that, when we, when we reach that sense of unity, 
Folks, it's good. Remember what David had to say? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. There's a second thing that I think we, we need to do, and, and we need to sort of shift our focus from the natural part, and that's self-focus, to what God intends, other-centeredness, where we're looking at him first and foremost, but, but even one another before ourselves. And once again, we get Jesus, see Jesus is the perfect example of this. Jesus left the splendor, the perfection of heaven to come down and live among a, an imperfect people and an imperfect world and loved us so much that he was willing to give his life for the very people who were calling for his death. Folks, I don't know how you get more other-centered than that. That's what God calls us to as well. Thirdly, I think God calls us to be a, a people who forgive others. That's not easy to do. Uh, sometimes we can uh, tend to hold a grudge. I don't know if you read in the news, but here just in the last day or two, the, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament is in its midst. March Madness is underway, not only for the men, but also for the women. And there was an occasion here, I think just yesterday or the day before, where the two teams at the end of their match were going to shake hands. That's one of the demonstrations of sportsmanship at the end of the, of the game. And so the two teams were, were walking, they're, they're shaking hands, and one of the women from one of the teams in the process, rather than shaking hand, popped her in the face. Now, I don't know what was said or what was done to lead to that, but obviously this person had not forgiven the other individual. <laughs> Folks were called to be a people of forgiveness because too often we don't see that exemplified in the world. And then finally, just as we're to forgive others, we're to ask others to forgive us. You see, all of us do things sometimes that we shouldn't do. And we say things that we shouldn't say. We try to catch ourselves before that happens. But it's not always possible. Now, I know that's not easy to do to ask other people for forgiveness. It's humbling. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But like all of the other things I've talked about, if we don't do these, we won't retain, we won't continue to hold on to that sense of unity that God calls his people toward. So what is it that I'm hoping you walk out with today? Well, uh, let me kind of recap. Uh, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about the fact that, that unity is hugely important to God. That God is a God of unity, that he hates divisiveness. We've talked about the fact that godly unity doesn't mean that we embrace every teaching or philosophy or, or lifestyle in the Word, but instead we focus and remain true to the principles and the teachings of God as revealed to us in His Word. It also means that we don't try to become clones of one another. We recognize that there are differences between us, but we see those differences as complementary to one another instead of destructive and divisive. It means that we, we see unity as something that should be centered on Christ and on his word, that, that it's intended to find harmony as we come together as the people of God. And then, and then finally, we discover that, that we work toward it by making it a goal in our lives, by focusing on others, by being gracious enough to forgive and humble enough to ask forgiveness when that's needed. I want to wrap up with uh, just one last story for you today. It, it's taken out of the book that you see on the screen by Max Lucado. He's one of my favorite writers in terms of just um, easy, fun, comfortable, deep revelations of God. He's got an extraordinary gift and ability to do that. Uh, this is from his book entitled A Gentle Thunder. And um, 
sort of refers to unity. See what you pick up from this. Some time ago, I read a, uh, sorry. Um, some time ago, I came upon a fellow on a trip who was carrying a Bible. Are you a believer, I asked him. Well, yes, he said excitedly. Now, I've learned that you can't be too careful when you uh, fellowship with other people. And, and so I began to ask him some questions for clarity. Do you believe in the virgin birth, I asked. I do, he said. Do you believe in the deity of Christ? No doubt, he replied. Could it be, I wondered, that I was face to face with a real Christian brother? Nevertheless, I, I continued down my checklist. Do you believe in the return of Christ? I believe it's imminent, was his response. What about the Bible? It's inspired, was his immediate answer. Now I was getting excited. Are you a conservative or a liberal? Uh, I, and he was uh, getting interested in me as well. He said, I'm a conservative. I asked him uh, as my heart began to beat faster, what denomination are you a part of? And he responded, I'm a member of the Southern Congregationalist Holy Son of God Dispensationalist Triune Convention. <laughs> and now I was really excited because that was my denomination as well. And I asked him, what branch of the denomination are you? And he said, I'm part of the premillennial, post-tribulation, non-charismatic, King James, one cup, communion branch. And my eyes misted over. That was my branch. And I had only one other question to ask him. Is your pulpit wooden or plexiglass? <laughs> plexiglass, he replied. Slowly I stepped back in dismay. And sadly turned and walked away, whispering under my breath, heathen. <laughs> Folks, there is so much that unites us as God's people. May he help us to focus on those. May he help us to put importance where important needs to be, but ignore the things that might otherwise create disunity because it's that sense of unity that identifies us. It's that sense of unity that's supposed to make us different. It's the sense of unity that proclaims we are the bride of Christ, his body, the church. May that be true in our lives. May that be true in our church this day and every day. Amen.